Hi, church. Hey, thanks. So about 10 years ago, I announced to my congregation, I am retiring. And uh, Rochelle and I took about a year and kind of recharged. But we also thought, you know, maybe there's some way in which God could use us and we could be helpful. Um, I feel like, you know, when I was 30, which by the way was at first of Anne, I thought I knew everything. But now I know I don't, and maybe that means I could be useful. So, so we then embarked upon a process, and over the last 10 years, uh, God has led us to four different places. Uh, Washington, Iowa, Marshalltown, Iowa, Rochester, Minnesota, and then back here to Memphis. And uh, in the last assignment, there was a memorable moment that I think is relevant to today. <clears throat> so we had uh, gone through the process. This is at a church in Rochester. The previous pastor had been there for 35 years. And so there was a, a major transition to find the next guy. But uh, God did a wonderful work. <clears throat> and uh, in March of 2020, uh, we were ready to install our pastor next. And so we had an amazing installation service on March 8. And he was scheduled to preach his first sermon the next Sunday. That was also the week that everything as we know it fell apart with the COVID crisis. And so the following week, instead of enjoying a sweet season of meeting with his new faith family, our new pastor was preaching to a camera in an empty room. <laughs> and he didn't get to be with the congregation for six or nine months. Church as we knew it came to a screeching halt. And God's people, along with the rest of the world, had to learn about Zoom meetings, about masks, about the rationing of toilet paper at Costco. <laughs> now, I would like to think that we have learned a thing or two from that. God, what did you want us to learn from that season? What do you want us to extract from that experience? Here's one takeaway. Given the right conditions, it is possible for churches to be closed. Now, I mean by this to close buildings used by Christians. So what are we going to do next time? I am sure it will happen again. Circumstances may be different. I want to speak to that question this morning. And there is a word in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. And you don't need to turn there yet because we're going to go a lot of other places before we get there. But that's where I want to end up in that passage. And there is a word in there that is going to help us profoundly as we anticipate what would we do the next time? And what should we do now to get ready for that next time? Now, 
before we jump into the passage, I need to do two things. Uh, first thing I want to do is define the word church. And then I want to do some background on the situation being addressed by the author of the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to do those two things first, and then we'll jump into the passage that I want to look at this morning. Define church, Jim. The word church, which comes from the Greek word ekklesia, simply means assembly, a, a gathering of people. It can refer, for example, it's used in secular Greek, meaning Greek outside the Bible, miscellaneous documents that we can look at, to refer to a, legis a legislative assembly. Uh, it can be used of a local gathering of believers, but nowhere, ecclesia is used 114 times in the New Testament, nowhere is it used of a building. I'm going to show you some passages. Here's Acts 12:5. So pastor was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the ecclesia, the church, to God. In that passage, church, as in the other places, refers to a people. In this case, a praying people. They are united in prayer, but, by the way, not necessarily all in one location. It says that prayer was being made fervently by the church, which is a people, to God. At this point in the life of the church, there's 10,000 or so believers. Now, how do we know that they were praying in different locations? Well, here's a passage, Acts 12:12. 12, 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So here the churches were praying. And here's a group of them gathered at John Mark's home. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark in his mom's house. So he's a younger fellow, I guess, who's still living at home. And uh, there's a prayer meeting going on. Now, I am confident John Mark's house was just one of the locations where, quote, many from the church gathered, but 10,000 people would not fit it at that home. Now, a church, which, again, a church is a group of people, if I'm going to use biblical terminology, can gather as a defined group in a home. For example, in Romans 16:5, Paul says, I want you to greet the church that is in their house, referring to Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. They apparently had a house that was where the church met. Church can refer to a people regardless of whether they are gathered or not. For example, here's Acts 8.1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. There's church, our word. And they, by the way, personal pronoun, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Here, church refers to a people. They've been scattered because of persecution, but they are still called the church. Now, they're also called by some other names. Here's a passage that tells us about some other names, Acts 11:26. And for an entire year, they, referring to Barnabas and Saul, met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The church is also known by the title disciples and in Antioch they started to be called called Christ followers or Christians here's what I want you to get church is who we are 
It's not a place we go. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, we read something that's helpful. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear, hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. We are the church. You are the church. This building is not the church. You are the church. And there are times when we come together as a church. But we are no less the church when we are not gathered together. The church is not a building, but a people. You don't go to church. You are the church. The church can be scattered or gathered. Now, here's the key thing I want you to hang on to. But there are certain activities that are essential when we are gathered as a church. And Hebrews 10.23 describes one of those. You cannot do what it tells us in isolation, church. You can only do this church when you are gathered so that's one thing i want you to hang on to as we prepare to jump into this passage now second thing i want to tell you about is the state of the hebrew church because what i'm going to explain is a passage in the letter to the hebrews and so what do we know about them and what do we know based on this letter uh, to understand what's going on in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, our passage we're going to focus on, we need to understand the faith challenge of the group that is addressed in this. And by the way, the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 22, the, the author says, I thank you for bearing with this brief word of exhortation. That's what he calls his letter. And by the way, that word exhortation is a word that is going to figure prominently in what we talk about. That's the word paraklesis. By the way, some people have said that this is stupid humor, but anyway, uh, I'm attracted to stupid humor. Uh, there are those who say, well, the book of Hebrews was obviously written by a woman because who would call 13 chapters a brief word? I'll let you do what you want with that. <laughs> the writer of this letter, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is, is trying to encourage the saints. He's providing a, a brief word of paraklesis, which means encouragement, comfort, exhortation, toward a specific outcome. What, what's he after here? What's he, what's he trying to do? There are some glimpses of the Hebrew church's history that are provided in the book. And so we can unpack those. And frankly, their salvation story is truly inspiring. Listen to this passage. This is Hebrews 10, uh, verses 32 and 34. But remember the former days. So he's actually saying to them, would you please remind yourself of something? Which, by the way, is what happened in your first chapter with Jesus? When, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly become, by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. 
For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The church of the Hebrews made an incredible start. And the author of this letter wants them to recall. I want you to recall where you start. This was amazing. They fully embraced the truth. And they promptly entered a war zone for Jesus. For most of us, I'll just speak for me, I can't identify. When I came to Christ, there was no persecution being unleashed on those who came to Christ. I'm I'm so struck by this phrase, by the way. It says, the last part of what I read, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Who does that? I mean, my mental image is of a family, and they're kind of lined up while the authorities are roving through the house. And they're taking everything, everything they can find of value. And dad is looking at mom and the kids, and he's, it's like he's got a secret, and he's going... <laughs> They're accepting joyfully. In other words, they're taking all our stuff. But they can't take the real stuff. He says, you've accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing, here's what they know, that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You can take my stuff. Frankly, we've got way too much stuff. I'm just speaking to me, not to you. We've got way too much stuff. You can take my stuff. But what matters, you can't take that from me. Their confidence in their future fueled an astounding (laughs) response to hardship. They lived from a prevailing hope And they were still engaged now in 6.10. We read, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and, get this, and in still ministering to the saints. They're still pressing in. But their zeal seems to have cooled. Now, the references are in your notes of everything I'm going to read because it's going to, you know, I don't want to get bogged down on it, but in, for example, 511, he says, you have become dull of hearing. It's hard to get something in. By this time, according to 512 and 13, he says, by this time, you should be teachers. Instead, you're newbies in need of the basics. You are at risk of drifting away from what you heard. That's 2-1. I wonder if you are growing weary and losing heart. That's 12-3. Those are all very real threats. So the author's word of encouragement, he says, I've written a brief word of encouragement, is about remembering who they are in Christ. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. That's what he's after. 
I want you, church, to be a persevering church who holds fast the confession of your hope. Undaunted. So some of the things he does in this letter is, for example, he walks them through the hall of faith. That's chapter 11. He wants them to see, look at Abraham. Look at Sarah. Look at these men of God. And he even mentions, you know, he doesn't mention by name, but he says, shut the mouths of lions. That's a reference to Daniel. These are the ones who have gone before you. And they had an undaunted faith. Then chapter 12, he, he closes the hall of faith by taking them to the cross where they see the ultimate faith example. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and get this, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. He designed it. He created it. He's the one who makes it work. He's the one who illustrates it. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See what's going on here? Jesus demonstrated the kind of ama amazing faith that we need to emulate. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. How did he do that? Because he knew that the outcome would be worth it. What outcome? It says his, the future joy. What's that? Oh, this gets me. Us with him. That's what he wanted. Us with him. That's why I went to the cross. Okay, one more verse and then you're, you're ready for Hebrews 10. This is in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And you remember how the writer of Hebrews said, I've written you a brief word of paraclesis. Now let's read this. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving, Pistos is faith. Apistia is the word here, not faith. Unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But get this, I don't want this for you, but encourage, that's the verb, parakaleo, one another, day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've written a brief word of paraclesis. And by the way, the correct accent of it is paraclesis. But in, in English, we don't work so well with that. So we're just going to call it paraclesis. Yes, I know that I'm accenting my English word different than the Greek one. But those of you who are Greek scholars who want to help me out, just understand I'm trying to be helpful. 
Okay? <laughs> so, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. In other words, encouragement is critical. All right, let's sum up what we've said so far. The author of Hebrews is concerned that the faith of these amazing folks may be flagging. So he wrote a brief word of encouragement to help them recharge their faith. And then he calls them to do the same, to encourage one another. I'm going to encourage you, and among other things, I'm going to encourage you to encourage one another to fix their hope on what Jesus has promised and live with a faith aflame. Now we're ready for our passage. Hebrews is this brief word of encouragement to those who are at risk of a flagging faith. And he encourages them to encourage each other to hold fast their confession. And he introduces something that I will call the paraclesis protocol. And we'll unpack that as we get into it. Here is God's word. Stand with me as we read God's word. I'll read it. You follow along. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God bless the reading of his word. You may see me. All right, let's pick apart some key things from this passage, all right? He says, let us hold fast, and hold fast means don't let it slip away. Don't let it slip out of your grip. This same word, kadeko, is used in the parable of the soils. Listen to this. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast. There's kadeko. And they bear fruit with perseverance. So when he says, let us hold fast the confession, he's saying, hang on to it. Don't budge from it. The confession of our hope is a declaration that basically is, my hope is in the Lord. And by holding fast, I'm not budging from that. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is not in the next political cycle my hope is not in economics. My hope is not in you figure whatever you want to put in there. My hope is in the Lord. And I'm not budging from that. Without wavering means unqualified, undiminished. To say I'm going to hold fast the confession of my hope without wavering means I could not be more convinced than I already am that living all in for Jesus is worth it. Hebrews 10.23 is echoed elsewhere. For example, in 3.6 it says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Get this. If we hold fast, there's echo, our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The pressure to compromise, to dial back zeal was on then. And it's on now, and it's going to get worse. Okay, 
Why? What's the justification for flaming faith? For he who promised is faithful. The word for in an explanatory guard tells us the reason for unwavering faith. You want to know why I am not budging? Jesus is my hope alone. Because Jesus, who promises eternal life to all those who believe in him, is absolutely trustworthy. I would say you can take that promise to the bank, but I don't believe banks are good enough. You could not make a better life investment than an investment in what Jesus says, follow me, it will be worth it. And, he says, here's a second calling. Hold fast your confession and, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Yes, make your faith like bedrock, hold fast, but also do some pondering pertinent to others. That's consider. Consider, think about how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Ask yourself, how can I help people in my circle to love Jesus and to do what he desires? How can I do that? Stimulate, let us consider how to stimulate. Stimulate has a bit of an edge to it. Uh, I like to think of a coach who is getting something from the players that goes beyond what they even realize is in them because he kind of cranks them up. Become a spiritual life coach who pushes those in your circle to take it to the next level. Help them take loving and doing in Jesus' name up a notch. Hold fast your confession and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Not forsaking our own assembling as is the habit of some. Forsaking assembly was the root that some were choosing. The heat was up. It is true, the church is the church because the church are people, whether you are gathered or scattered, but you can't do this scattered. Some were deciding, ah, I, don't, I don't think I need to come be a part of this. It's going to be too costly. This was one of the ways that flagging faith was expressed. Stimulating each other to love and good deeds cannot be accomplished in isolation. He says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but, so don't go in isolation mode, but encouraging one another. There's our word, the verb this time, parakaleo. You have to be together. You have to gather together in some form. It can be in a house. Priscilla and Aquila would say, works good for us. It can be in a building like this. But when we assemble, one of the things that Jesus says, that Hebrews says, must be true, is that we speak, and I call it the language of E, 
of encouragement. Now, what does it mean to encourage? What, what, is, what is that? Uh, to encourage means to appeal to someone to do what is right, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.1. You're actually making an appeal to someone to encourage them to do something that is right. And you do it in a way that gives that other person every advantage to do what is right. That's 1 Timothy 5.1. And these are all places where parakaleo or paraklesis is used. It also involves ministering comfort to those facing distress and affliction. Here's someone who is paying a cost for following Jesus. And parakaleo means I am encouraging them and comforting them. And I am telling them it will be worth it. Remember the Hebrews? They were quietly celebrating while people were taking their stuff because the stuff that truly matters that Jesus has for us, they can't touch it. True encouragement is also word-driven. This is from Titus 1.9. Uh, the elders need to be those who are fully devoted to the word in order that they might parakaleo. Here's the clincher. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The day refers to the return of Jesus. You see, as you see the day drawing near, means that a growing sense of the imminent return of the Lord should energize us for a ministry of mutual encouragement. As you see, we're getting closer. I don't know when he's coming, but we're getting closer. We desperately need to speak the language of E when we are together so that we will hold fast the confession of our hope and not be budged. As we draw near to the day, the challenge to hold fast your confession is going to ramp up. It's going to be harder. And the need for mutual encouragement in our come-together moments is going to profoundly increase. The day is coming, and now is, when the gathering of God's people to bolster one another's faith is critical, which means we must become a people who are fluent in the language of mutual encouragement now. Is encouragement spoken here? Let me sum up. The church is not a building but a people. You don't go to church. You are the church. The church can be scattered or gathered. But when we gather, you are called to encourage one another. As the day of the Lord approaches, the need for mutual encouragement is going to ramp up. And in the future, it is possible you will not be able to go to church, for example, like come to this building. We already know it is possible for circumstances to be maneuvered in such a way that we can't. But finding ways to minister one-on-one -on -one encouragement is critical to faith aflame. The gathering of the church is not just about the music or the sermon or being with friends. Those things are not bad. But if there is no mutual encouragement, something vital is missing. As the day draws near, we desperately need E 
encouragement. I like to play with words. Uh, that, you know, when people write down, you know, what do you do for fun? You know, well, I play, you know, uh, paddle ball or croquet or something. Uh, I like to play with words. They're really fun. And uh, the sermon title this morning is Getting Close, which works on three levels. As we get close to the day, you know, as you see the day drawing near, that's getting close. We better get close, that's assembly, to get close with encouragement. A church that doesn't gather to encourage is a sitting duck for a faith disaster, and we need to be that now. So we're ready for what's coming. We may not be able to meet like we are right now as a larger group in a highly visible facility. It shouldn't matter. We are the church. We will not forsake gathering together somehow, and as often as we do, the language of biblical encouragement is going to flow freely among us. Churches are famous for potluck dinners. This is my illustration of what this is like. And I don't like the term potluck because Proverbs 16.33 says, uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, which means even insignificant things are the product of God orchestrating things according to his grand plan. So there's no such thing as a potluck dinner, which is why I call it a pot providence or a pot prov for short. And... Uh, we like those, you know, where everybody brings something and we share. Every gathering of the church needs to be a pot providence feast of spiritual food shared with each other. The early church got this. So then, those who did, this is from Acts 2, 41, 42, our first uh, hallmark statement about the state of the church. So then, those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. First day of the church's existence. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's sharing with one another, encouraging one another. The breaking of bread, that's pot providence meals that probably included communion and to prayer. The early church from day one understood this. Okay, Jim, so how, how, do, how do we do this? And I want to introduce to you the, what I call the paraclesis protocol. Here's six steps you can take to grow your ability to be a church of encouragement. It is desperately needed in light of what's coming. So here are the six steps, all right? First, search the scriptures to find words of encouragement that minister to your soul. So read the Bible every day. Turn off the computer, turn off the phone, read the Bible. And the approach that I take is basically, uh, and I do this every day, and, and I'm saying, God, I want you to show me something. I've shared this with you before. And sometimes the very first verse I read leaps off the page. Sometimes I read pages and pages until something leaps off the page. But I'm basically saying, God, show me what I need today. So search the scriptures to find words of encouragement that minister to your soul. And then 
journal your journey in relevant words. And I brought a copy of something. I have a bunch of these. I just grabbed one. But this is a, this is a journal. It's one of those books that you write in. And uh, this is kind of a fat one. So up in the front it says, I started the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations in January of 2006. And looks like I finished with Proverbs, and I jump all around. I'm reading all kinds of books of the Bible. But I completed on August 15, 2008. And so I'm basically just reading something from Scripture. And then what you can see here is, uh, here I've written, here's Isaiah 41, 8 through 13. That's what jumped out at me. So I wrote the whole passage. And then I wrote, here's what God is teaching me from that passage. And I've got bunches of these journals you know those articles in the newsletter that, you know, that's the, the front page article on the newsletter? You know what those are? Those are just these. You know, I, I look through there and I find one that I think, oh, I think this would be helpful for God's body. And so I just share with you from out of this journal or journals. So step one, search the scriptures to find words of encouragement that minister to your soul. Step two, Journal your journey in relevant words. And then number three, come to every gathering of the church prepared to minister encouragement. Listen to this verse, which to me, uh, when, when you read it in the Greek, and I'm going to use the Greek words in a certain place just because it's so powerful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all paraklesis, who parakaleos us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to parakaleo those who are in any affliction with the paraklesis with which we ourselves are parakaleoed by God. You see what's going on here? God is a God of encouragement. He's given us the pot providence of spiritual nourishment. And Paul is saying, just as you've been encouraged, just as God encourages you, you encourage others. Share the, the insight that God has given you. Step four, ask the Lord to reveal someone who needs encouragement. Before you come to church, and I'm using the term there, come to church, in a way that we use in our language, uh, yes, yes, we come to church, but we are the church. When you come to the church assembled, that'll be more accurate, before you get out of the car, ask the question, God, I would like to be a source of encouragement for someone. I would like to convey to them truth from your word that will put fuel in their tank to be faithful. And so then as you're talking with people, don't just come sit in your, your pew. Talk to people and ask questions. What are you dealing with right now? That's number five, ask questions. What are you dealing with? What's going on right now? And if God wants you to share something, it will come to mind. It'll be something from your journal or something that you've learned. Then number six, share what you have learned that can bolster faith 
in a similar situation. Find a way that you can minister encouragement by asking questions and then share. You know, sometimes, and you're going to figure out different ways to do this. Some of you will actually write out a card with a verse on it and a principle that you will take with you. And then you'll say, God, would you show me who I need to give that to? And you'll have a conversation. And you'll be able to say, you know, I didn't really know why, but I wrote this down. And I wonder if this might be something that would minister encouragement to you. And you give them your card. Well, Jim, I, I, I don't know what I should share. I mean, what, what if I could share? Okay, well, let me get you started, all right? The previous four sermons in this last word series, and today really, really is the last word, but preachers have a tough time with that, you know. Uh, so the last four sermons all provided a word of paraclesis. And I'm going to review them for you so that you know what you're dealing with. And if you haven't gone through the previous four sermons, you can, if one of these hits you, go back and listen to it. You can download my notes on the website, etc. But these are four words of encouragement that you can give to someone, uh, in case one, who is facing a mountain. Second one is someone who is struggling with sacrifice that God is asking of them. Third one is a witness challenge. I'm trying to communicate the gospel and I'm struggling. And then the fourth one is a warfare challenge. What well, seems like the enemy's ganging up on you. All right, so here they are from four weeks ago. For those who are facing a mountain challenge, here's the principle. Ask God, this is what you would share with someone. They're going, man, I don't know how. I need breakthrough. Ask God to work through your words and deeds. Do what he prompts you, and he is capable of doing impossible things through you. That was four weeks ago. Three weeks ago, for those who are struggling with sacrifice, God is asking me to give up something that is going to be costly. Here's what we said. As you give your time, your energy, your resources for whatever serves Jesus' interest, it will be so worth it. Someone who's struggling in terms of making the gospel real to somebody, a witness challenge. Here's what we said two weeks ago. As you find ways to do and say what aligns with his name, your identity as one whom the Father loves will become obvious. And then last week, somebody who's dealing with a warfare challenge, what you can say is, if you will use the seven-piece toolkit God has provided to effectively resist our true enemy, you will stand firm. Bottom line, start building a library of words of encouragement that God gives to you. Number two, measure the value of every gathering by how well you have encouraged someone else to hold fast. Don't just come and hear the speaker. Don't just come and sing the songs. It was worth it for us, the church, to gather together because God used me to minister encouragement to someone and God used someone to minister encouragement to me. That's what we desperately need if we're going to hold fast, even as we see the day coming. May I pray for you?
Let's pray. Father, you provide incredible, timely encouragement to each of our souls. You saved us. And in your word, you give us what we need each day. You provide the daily bread from your word. I pray that you would make of us a people who are fluent in the language of encouragement toward one another. Our times of gathering together are not just rich for what happens on the platform, but what happens in the room as your people are ambassadors of encouragement toward one another. Father, we want to become that, but we need your teaching and your guidance and your help to become that. Make of us a people who don't just all go about their business, but instead are finding ways to put fuel in one another's tank so that we might hold fast our confession as we see the day drawing near. Thank you, Father, that you hear our prayer because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.